Hi, and welcome again to Second Rate Film School. I'm Andrew Wass. I'm Jake Tamari. And I'm Jason McCullough. And today we're reviewing my personal favorite Spider-Man movie and many, I guess, favorite Spider-Man 2. This is one of my favorite films, like the first one, but this is kind of that special sequel where it not only tops the second one, but it's just a, a great film in its own right and transcends its own genre. It's Probably my second favorite sequel of all time behind The Empire Strikes Back. Huh? I prefer the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man. Well, we're off to a great start. So this <laughs> opening credit sequence is you're, pretty... You're welcome for that insight. <laughs> yes. This, this opening credit sequence is pretty spectacular because this is... Uh, well, okay, here's the title. And it's red instead of blue, in case you weren't paying attention. Yes. Okay, so we jump right into the Alex Ross art, which is pretty... Pretty great idea. Yeah. Alex but, Ross is a fantastic artist. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's cool just seeing like yeah, you know, summing up like the previous movie, seeing like, you know, great artwork. Like I'd want that portrait of James Franco. <laughs> just hanging in your room. Yeah. That's not Alfred Molina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, this is a lot better than um, and we'd said pre- on our previous commentary track for the original Spider Man, um, Jacob especially brought up um the credits were a little dated, especially with the CGI recreation of the costume. So this is a definite upgrade already, and we're 30 seconds into the movie. I don't like that you're ascribing the blame for that comment all on me. I feel we all consented <laughs> about that. I never thought about it. I should refer, um, refer, rephrase it as. I never thought about it until you pointed out, but yes. Notice how the Spider-Man's eyes uh, look different than, than they do in the film. They're a little more... Uh, Angular? No, they're a little more curvy, and there's more oh. black to them in the outline. It's more like the comic book shape. Yeah. Is there a reason why they did it that way, or is that an artistic choice? Maybe that's just Alex Ross preferring it or something. There's nothing finished, and no one would say anything because it's just so good. They wouldn't want him to fix it. Well, they, couldn't, they couldn't be like, Alex Ross, we're hiring you to draw pictures in a movie. Draw them like the movie, or we're going to hire Mark Bagley. So, well, because the costumes really, the costume does look a lot more like the comic version than um, the movie version, you know. And they even have Tobey Maguire's a little more is more muscular in the these depictions, or at least to me, it looks like he's more muscular. So it's a little bit of a hybrid of trying to recreate the movie, but having a lot more of the the um, comic influence over it. Well, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man looks the most like the Romita Spider-Man. In terms of body shape, I suppose. Yes, I agree. This is the Great Gatsby part of the Spider-Man movies, which is very ironic considering Tobey Maguire. Mary Jane Watson. But no, it's very ironic since Tobey Maguire was later in that garbage um, Gatsby movie that Baz Luhrmann did. I never actually saw it. It's it's okay. It's not. I don't think it was bad. I don't know. I guess it depends how much you like Baz Luhrmann. But anyway. Let's talk about a better movie. Yeah. Oh, yes. The most iconic part of this movie, the pizza. Hey, that was a large part of the PS2 game. I'm going to talk about every <laughs> PS2 version of these movies. And yeah. he has never actually seen any of these movies. However, he has played the video games, and he loves them. I will just say my gripe about the PS2 game with the pizza missions, they get fucking impossible. You're supposed to go uptown and downtown in 30 seconds delivering pizzas. Bullshit. Also, it's not on the waterfront like it's in the game, so this movie's garbage. So Peter was just playing <laughs> stuff to fail in the video game then. Yeah. I thought the 
where this is just going to turn into a commentary track for the um, PS2 game. So just put your game on and start playing it, and we'll um, hopefully line up with what you're talking about or what you're playing. Here's your controls. Now we we talk about how the first movie kind of you know shows its age and sometimes here and there, but this is a movie that's aged like fine wine, where it it just plays as great as it did nearly 20 years ago now. Yeah. You know, Same. It truly understands, even more so than the first one, which totally understood it as well, uh, the core of Peter Parker and how being Spider-Man makes being Peter Parker very difficult. This gets that down to a T, and you can see that very clearly in this opening scene. There's just an organic advancement of the story, too, with Peter Parker. Oh, here's the most important scene in the movie. <laughs> this got a great laugh in the theater, too, yeah. I remember. It just yeah, Sam Raimi <laughs> did, like, a, a Reddit Q&A, like an anything uh, a couple weeks ago for the, the Grudge remake and he was like I'm the producer of the Grudge ask me anything and almost every single question was like about pizza time and Spider-Man <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure his long illustrious career is very happy for that you know that's that's the co-writer of Evil Dead too. Yeah. oh what's that guy's name Scott I don't know I'm looking at I forgot, I forgot his name he looks like a character from Miami Vice <laughs> And the, the Spider-Man's costume looks even better in this, in oh, this yeah. movie. Yeah, just you know, just a lot more confidence this time around. The technology has advanced more. I think Raimi's directorial abilities have, you know, have advanced, and he's just gained more confidence. The script is impeccable. Just everything. I mean, this movie is really just kind of perfect. Now, what kinks there were in the first one, they um, completely ironed out in this. I, I will agree that I think this is my favorite um, superhero movie and I know there are technically better superhero movies but I will always point to someone if like someone never heard of a comic book and they're like well what's a movie version like of a comic book I would show them this first yeah maybe the first one so they would understand what's going on but. I would say this movie The Dark Knight and Superman the movie are the three best comic book movies yeah aren't you forgetting X-Men The Last Stand that was 80 minutes of pure emotional power. <laughs> oh no. Oh, and there's, uh, oh, what's her name? Zoe Deschanel's sister. Emily? I think. Emily dead from Bones, That's yeah. Those pizzas are pretty crushed, even if he wasn't um, a few minutes late. I wouldn't pay for those. And one of them is going to have webbing on it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, missing a piece. So that's. He's on the Daily Show. Yeah, he's also Uncle Monty in the series of unfortunate events. Yeah, they did not get him to voice the character in um, the video game, though. No, no, they got the budget Mr. Aziz. No, <laughs> he was a lot more unsympathetic in the game. Also, like you feel like he feels bad here, but in the video game, he just fires you like unsympathetically. Well, speaking of firing. No, I think we need to talk more about the video game. Well, now, now this is in the Michael Shaden script. Uh, this scene, where the dial—the scene goes on a, a little long, and there's more dialogue, but this is, you know, the essence of it is, is pretty much here. And the Michael Shaden script, by the way, is—I uh, haven't read the whole thing, but it's very—it feels like a, a novelist who's never written a screenplay before. 
because it's not written in traditional screenplay format. It's like a guy who just wrote it in Windows. <laughs> yeah. Microsoft, Microsoft Word. Microsoft Word. <laughs> and he got his word processor out and wrote the sequel to the biggest movie of 2002. Um, he wrote it on WordPerfect. Really, really, Alvin Sargent uh, was an excellent choice to direct this. He's an incredibly accomplished writer in his own right, but he writes really sort of heartfelt, sympathetic stories that I think matches perfectly with Spider-Man. We were talking last time about like how James Cameron was doing that, and that would have been cool, but uh, I think he, he might have even said it himself. He's not quite the right match for that material, mm-hmm. and you can see that how yeah. he tried to turn it into like an R-rated sort of story. Whereas Alvin Sargent, his sensibilities match up really well with the, the heart of Spider-Man. It, it does, too. I mean, it, he hasn't written anything like this before. I, he wrote Ordinary People. Uh, which is a really great character-based movie and everything. And I, 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 watching that, you can kind of see, you know, where his strengths lie. There, it's it's very, very character-based, and he, he really gets to the humanity of it. And this this movie's no exception. And I was just yeah. reading Robert McKee's storybook, and he he did a whole chapter ironically on ordinary people. Yeah, and this book got me thinking about Alvin Sargent. Yeah, no, he's he was a terrific writer. Kind of, kind of overlooked, maybe. I mean, okay, great. Ordinary People was an acclaimed movie, but. He was he he was had that special ability of just being invisible. If the writing if that makes any sense. He didn't have huge stylistic quirks that stuck out. It, it was it's more not like yeah. you're you're watching like an Aaron Sorkin film or something, which I I kind of appreciate actually. Yeah. Um, it kind of shows a range that I think a lot of those acclaimed writers with a more signature style sort of miss out on. They can. I mean, there's. There's a benefit to both, but for here, it's it's a benefit because he, he he's able to you know meld with the material and have it be that he doesn't get in the way of it. Yeah, he exactly. serv- yeah he services the material in the best way possible and is there for, for the best possible story. Well, we just talked over Dr. Connors, um, but you know what? I think Alvin Sargent <laughs> is worth it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've talked over a lot. I was just in the point at how when um, he was on the ground, that was Sam Raimi who hit him in the head with the bag, and that's my favorite director cameo ever. Just beating the shit out of Tobey Maguire for bag. <laughs> that was that was good. I like it when he's throwing the popcorn at him in the first movie. Oh, his hand also is his hand pushes Tobey Maguire in the in, in the wrestling match. That oh. the shot oh, behind really? him. Yeah, that's Sam Raimi's hand pushing. That's him. great. <laughs> World's worst birthday party with your elderly widowed aunt. <laughs> The girl you friend zoned and the guy whose father you murdered. Uh, I thought you were gonna say in James Franco. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's, it's the people you care about. Yeah. Yeah. She and had to put up a second mortgage on her house to afford three birthday decorations. <laughs> uh, I remember this was in the trailer, like every single trailer taking pictures of your friend. That, that was a great trailer. Both yeah. trailers were yeah. fantastic. I remember seeing that teaser in fifth grade. We watched it during like free time. Like one guy and I, we went to like the other side of the classroom, like we got like the dividers and everything. We were just alone watching the teaser, and that was pretty great seeing that. Instead of learning, you were just watching that, and it was totally worth it. <laughs> now I've heard people. Um, joke um including cinemasins joked about um harry like who was a slacker high school student is now the head of special projects for oscorp and like what in like two years a slacker and it's like to be fair also a decapitation strike was <laughs> performed at the world unity festival there's not really anyone <laughs> left at oscorp so i think harry could do whatever the fuck he want 
That's actually the most realistic part of the movie for me. Yeah. Well, that's, well, some, <laughs> that's some dumb rich kid's son who gets yeah. full, total control over the autonomy of this company. Absolutely. Just totally runs crazy. it into the ground. Yeah, he totally fucks I, it up. Yeah, I assume by the third one that he, he's just running off the fumes of whatever's left of Oscorp's stock. Pretty much. Well, it's great though. Everyone's at a different place yeah. now because this movie does take place two years after the first one. It does. It, it, it ages in real time. Yeah. So everyone's kind of in a different place. <laughs> She's dead. <laughs> this, well, this is just a wonderful scene too between them. I remember seeing this in the theater and just kind of being oh. so struck by just her reaction to him, just getting angry at him for not taking the money. That's the thing. It's kind of like we talked about with Uncle Ben in the first one. You could really just sort of turn her into a very broad, frail, kindly aunt character, but she goes through a range of emotions and a, a bit of a character arc onto her own that makes her feel much more human. In this one, yeah. Uh, this is the one where she really has, a, you know, like you said, a, a really great character arc, uh, which is something I didn't really expect going into it. In fact, yeah, no. When I, when I first saw this movie, I didn't quite appreciate it the way I did. I, I was 12 and... Maybe some, I was expecting more along the lines of the first movie. And then this one, a couple of years later, it really, you know, really grew on me. This may be the first time in Spider-Man's history that Aunt May ever had a character arc <laughs> or anything <laughs> other, other than serve wheat cakes and or die. <laughs> Actually, I'm trying to think. In JMS's Spider-Man run, there was a really great issue where she found out that Peter was Spider-Man and had to deal with it. And over the course of several issues, come to trust him again. And that was very interesting. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the comics have ever done something like this, where she had to come to terms with, um, with, with him being partially responsible, at least from his viewpoint, for the death of Uncle Ben. I think they even did one where he said that, and she brushed it aside and was like, you know, that's not your fault. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's definitely an interesting you know, thought, thought process, because you know, he can't obviously reveal to her. No, I actually am responsible, because to her, it's just like, Oh yeah, your uncle was going to go pick you up at the library. She has no idea that of that. So it's a very interesting. There's two different things going on here. Where yeah, he's still not completely responsible for it, but he's a lot more than what she, not knowing his secret identity, is aware of. Yeah, and they kind of there's a great hint towards where this is going to go. Just with that shot no. of the mm-hmm. close up of his face looking very forlorn. Yeah, just. Raimi and Sargent with just that attention to detail to character. Well, we talked about that in the last movie, but here it's it's there, in you know, completely. And this is this is a great scene because it parallels the scene in the first movie between them. This is their makeout spot. I mean, their serious conversation spot. But but again, it's about these two people kind of at a different place in their lives, kind of like how they were in the first movie, where they're about to, to graduate. Here they're in the real world two years later living very, very different lives now, kind of living with both of the decisions. Oh boy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nothing that perfectly sums up my feelings sometimes. It's, cause I, do you think she's playing it here like she, she knows he still feels, he's, he, still, he still loves her, but... Absolutely. But, yeah. Okay. still living with his, his choice. 
And that's you know that's part of the the, the conflict of this movie with him feeling you know he tries to get what he wants but he, he can't and he has to choose between that. I remember um, Mad Magazine did a parody. They you know they sit in their issues would take just screenshots from movies and then just add in um, humorous captions and this one with her hand on his face. Their only caption was, why is your face so sticky? <laughs> and I get that they're kind of going for webbing, but at the same time, they made it a lot more perverted. That, that's my only... Um, Harry Osborne. Yeah, that's or my only input on this scene. Or you're a pervert. Maybe you got to think of that. I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to scan that issue and put just this entire issue up. Just hope, we, hope Mad, a DC Comics doesn't take us down. Reprinting Mad Magazine is the primary form of revenue for Mad Magazine. <laughs> so you might get in trouble for that. Hey, they're starting to do that now, so who knows? It is funny, though, um, and we'll get into it when we do the third commentary, or Spider-Man 3's commentary, how um, her, her Mary Jane's career trajectory, you know, she, she's penniless in the first one headlining a play that they are really advertising the hell out of in this city to being fired like after one performance in the third one well we'll get to that yeah but here's mr dickovich and whose name is a reference to the co-creator of spider-man steve ditko oh i thought you meant stan lee who would not have cared about (laughs) or or being you know having a character named i don't even think he you even think he saw this movie he saw the first movie apparently but did not approve of it he believed that it did not portray business in the military in a positive light. Well, didn't he say it was too violent? He did think it was too violent. Yeah. It's interesting. Steve Ditko had actually very nuanced opinions on what a superhero should be. Like, he... Remember that Civil War comic? Yeah. Uh, obviously, they based the movie on it, but he was very much against that because he saw the superhero as sort of like an ubermensch sort of character that the point of a superhero is to have no laws and be the idealized righteous version of a human physically and ethically mm-hmm. which sort of traces back to his objectivist beliefs so when civil war came out and turned them all into flawed humans he was very against that huh. hmm. well, what did he think of spider-man then? <laughs> <laughs> we never talked about it publicly there's like stuff online where people have spoken to him about it um I think he just saw Spider-Man as a work-for-hire sort of thing. Mm. Like, every time you mm. ask him about it, he didn't like to talk about it because it was something he did, like, 40 years in the past. Yeah. And then yeah. also, he was it didn't really reflect his beliefs and what interested him. That makes sense. I mean, you got to... Sometimes we ascribe so much importance onto these characters, but you got to think of it in terms of the people who created them because as a creator, you want to always evolve. You don't want to be stuck in the past because imagine if you created something incredible... And you're only known for that. You know that it's 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 a nice problem to have, but at the same time, as like a creative person, that it can kind of stifle you. And, and it was very frustrating for him because um, he did a lot of comics up until his death. He was doing them, and granted, there's debate to be had over the quality of those comics. But he was frustrated that people would say they were a fan of him, but then not actually go and engage with the material yeah. that he was creating now because they really only cared about. Which is such a problem the creators run into. Yeah. Fans oh, really yeah. don't they don't interact with their creation in the correct way. They they like it for the wrong reasons. And that can get very frustrating from the creator's perspective. So 
especially when they work so hard on it. So this is Alfred Molina. <laughs> Throw me the idol. I mean, if we're going to take a tangent, I think the co-creator of Spider-Man isn't the worst one. No, exactly. No. He's not talked about enough. I mean, we'll, we'll probably talk about him a little more when he's done anything, but he had a very interesting life up until his final days. So, yeah, well, this going back to inspired casting with Alfred Molina, that's apparently Raimi's wife. They were watching Frida, and she said to him, that's who we get to play Doc Ock. He does look spot on, does. like you know. And it, but it's great though because it, it's not just that though. He's he's just a really great character actor. And he okay, I I think Jacob, you and I will probably disagree on this, but I don't love the character of Doc Ock in the comics like you do. Mm-hmm. I've always thought he was kind of a one-dimensional character with like a great gimmick, but that was really it. And he's kind of like another mad scientist villain to me. But I, and I this might be an unpopular opinion, but I think this is the best interpretation of the character because there really is like a humanity. Misunderstood monster in this movie than this arrogant genius, which is fine in its own right. It just it's not as interesting to me personally. And I know over the comics they have done some things with that, but it only gets so far for me. But I'm just curious what you think about that. I just have to say real quick first. Um, I hope you have all enjoyed Jake being on these commentary tracks because today is his last one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, oh, what were you going to say, Jacob? I mean, I don't think that's the most controversial opinion. Okay. Saying, yeah. But I yeah. Think, uh, <laughs> of a lot of those original Spider-Man comics is that the, it wasn't about a villain. Well, I mean, like, yeah, there was like a villain of the week part of the story, but it was more about Spider-Man's life and dealing with being a superhero, and the villains were sort of like an obstacle to him getting what he really wanted, which was like a balance in his life. And so a lot of the villains were sort of gimmick-based characters that served more as like obstacles than anything. That's why so many Spider-Man villains are just like guys who get like the power of like gods and then just like i'm gonna go follow them. <laughs> oh yeah because you especially look yeah. at like when like these were being published like was this like the early 60s was that still like in the middle of this that's still the middle of the silver age so when comics were being very silly when they like the comic codes were cracking down and you couldn't do nearly as serious topics for like in and around the 50s and 60s so you were kind of limited by what they would allow you to do. You know, you look at some of the early Batman comics, you know, they're killing people, and then, oh, when you get to the 50s and 60s, oh, we got to have, you know, just, yeah, poison gas, but that's not really poisonous. It just it makes you laugh type stuff. So early villains in Spider-Man especially were kind of, I agree, hampered by that just from the era and what the mores and what you could and could not put in a comic. Well, it was more like, it wasn't even so much the content a lot of the times. I know that that was a factor, but it was more a thing where it wasn't about the villains as deep characters. It was about the villains as obstacles to get yeah. in the way of Peter having a normal life. I, I should have been more clear. I, I didn't mean in terms of when they were, when they were first created. I mean just over the many, the many decades now that they've been around. Doc Ock, for me, is just not really come as far as some of the other villains. I, I I like See, the sub. I, I gotta disagree there. I, I think this is probably my favorite version of the character, the yeah. one here. But there's a, a lot of fun mileage and interesting depths that you can mine from the extremely egotistical version of Doc Ock. There's silly stuff like the Jerry Conway premiere in Aunt May, or as the interesting stuff that Dan Slott did with him. Yeah, there, I agree. There, there is that. It just, I don't know. Reading even that stuff, I just there was just. I can only get so much out of that because his personality only got kind of got, got, got 
spectacular Spider-Man as well. Even in the animated series, he was never my favorite. I just, I don't know. I always found that egotistical, arrogant side just a little played out for me. I, I, maybe I just haven't seen like a great story with, with that yet, but I haven't, I've never really read a Spider-Man comic where I'm like, wow, this is a very compelling, interesting character. Break. But this I, is great. This yeah. is this is a great version of Doc Ock. I like how also we're going over like the world continuing to shit on Peter in this, like where he can't even afford to buy like the cheapest f- bouquet of flowers. Like they're not even like roses. They're just like shitty oh. flowers. I I love that. Yes. Like, and that's why I think the best um, Spider-Man comics can do. Like the whole you know people love him and you know he's fa- hugely famous. And, you know, then Peter Parker can't make any money whatsoever. He's li- living in a shitty apartment. And I enjoy that. Yeah, you know, showing, because you seem too often the superheroes, you know, secret identities, they live, you know, pretty good lives. Like, every any version of Superman I've really watched, you know, from around this time and earlier, it's like, you know, Clark Kent's got a really nice apartment. Things are going great for him and all that. Where the world's just shitting on Peter Parker. And I love it because... Fuck everything. The world's meaningless. Well, that's also the point of Spider-Man. It's, again, being Spider-Man makes being Peter Parker very difficult. And that is pretty much everything that this movie is about. Yeah. yeah. And we should stress that being poor and down on his luck isn't necessarily... Uh, or that shouldn't be, be the end-all be-all in terms of Peter's problems. No, I, no. I think it sh- they should stick to what Jacob said. Just being Spider-Man makes Peter's life more difficult. That's that's the conceit right there. It's, but the, but that still plays into it. Yeah. have sort of stemmed back to that. Like, him being poor stems back to the fact that he's Spider-Man because he just has this photography job and he doesn't have time to study, so he's not mm-hmm. getting through his classes. Yeah. But people act like that's like him being down on his luck and not being able to afford like. They think they always think that's like the definitive version of Peter, and the comics are always trying to go back to that. When I think that's always a mistake. I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like right now, I know. Uh, there's right there's right always right a now. cycle with comics. Yeah. Where they start off, they're doing the status quo, and then some writer comes in and they do a big shocking event that radically alters the status quo, and then everyone hates it, even though it's probably vaguely interesting, and then they do a back to basics thing, which somehow reverts him to what he used to be. And everyone likes it, even though it's only tangentially interesting. And that's comics. Oh, here's a Tim Blake Nelson. <laughs> the wrestler promoter has changed his profession for the first time. Well, I love how Bruce Campbell describes each of his roles in these movies. In the first one, he says, I created Spider-Man. In the second movie, he said, I defeated Spider-Man. And in the third movie, he says, I team up with Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> and in the fourth movie, I think he would have played Mysterio. That would have been great. According to those leads. Yeah, according to the, I think the concept art drew him as Mysterio. Yeah. Apparently, no one told Bruce Campbell about this. <laughs> he was at like a convention recently, and someone asked about that. He's like, "Listen, Sam never told me anything about that." <laughs> that very, very much feels like in um, Sam Raimi's nature of torturing Bruce Campbell. That just oh, like nice. wouldn't tell him about it. Oh, and uh, just a little. Uh, with reference to importance of being earnest, that's it's like a thematic parallel to this movie about duality. Yes, yep. that's all I know about the play. I've seen it once. I, I I saw like a local community theater play it, 
and for some reason they decided to be subversive and they all were in their underwear and that was the only change to it so it was not very subversive as much as I don't think they could afford the costumes you know it was ironic my ex-girlfriend I, I actually played the role that MJ played <laughs> I saw that play at Buff State I so that's John Jameson that is the son of Dave Bone Jameson that plays the other man now here is a challenge to you guys what point is there for it being J. Jonah Jameson's son in this movie Yes, for having him be the son of J. Jonah Jameson. And I'm not saying in terms of the symbolism of him being like an astronaut and a successful, handsome man. I mean him being Jameson's son. I don't think there is a reason, is there? I just shrugged. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, you were were legitimately asking us. It could have been anybody. I mean, I don't know how decisions are made maybe they wanted to beef up jameson's role in the movie and they're like oh we can use jameson's son to do it and that'll give him more of an important role maybe Raimi just really likes the comics and he thought that'd be an interesting character to introduce it could have really maybe been anybody because the point of jameson is he's an obstacle for peter because he's getting married to, to mary jane that's the point so it could have been fuck i think the occupation is you know him being an astronaut yeah a man who literally Flies into space. It's it's sort of like a increases the insurmountableness of him. But it you know it's one of those things. Well, I always thought I'm like yeah you know it didn't really have to be him. That's a good point too. Yeah. Well, I remember hearing rumors like when the third one was coming out, like people were wondering when it was confirmed Venom was going to be in it. Like were they going to do the comic storyline of like him coming back to Earth with it? Um, like and were they going to were they going to fuck with the origin story of? You know, making you know he's pissed off, so now this nothing character in this is the main villain in the third one. So I don't know if like they were potentially trying to set something up there, or like we said, it just was a nice nod Sam Raimi gave. Or I, I don't think yeah. Raimi was thinking of bringing in Venom in the second movie. <laughs> I think, and plus, uh, Jamie, that doesn't happen in the comics. Oh, I thought he came back on the space shuttle at least. No, in the comics, Peter gets the costume in Secret Wars. Oh, okay. Well, fuck. Um, oh, I'm thinking of Spider-Man Unlimited. You're thinking of Spider-Man the Animated Series. Yeah. I think it's pretty clear they were setting up Man-Wolf. <laughs> That's what everyone thought. Oh, shit, I, I could have, I could have dug that. Maybe doing Man-Wolf. I mean, it's, actually, yeah, that would have been that would have been on brand for Sam Raimi. I mean, I, I'll take that over Venom in the third one because I think Venom would have actually, or, or Raimi would have cared about the character a lot more. But that, that's we'll go into that in the third movie. This is a great, great visual right here. Yeah. All that you need to say, just communicating through one shot. Oh, he's like dragging the motorcycle along, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Says everything. Yeah. I always give him a lot of credit that he's able to keep continue finding this shit. Like, you know, he jumps in the car and is apparently able to find his suit somewhere else and then continue driving the car. He's able to find his motorcycle, which was not stolen. You know, it's like pretty pretty great that he's able to continuously find all the shit he leaves around just the streets of New York City. That's the real superpower. Honestly, that's a very Spider-Man problem to have. <laughs> I remember in Homecoming when that, that I think the the moment I realized like how much Homecoming was gonna play for me was when he had to take off the costume or take off his clothes, put on the costume, and then he lost his clothes. Mm, yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, okay, this movie gets it in a yeah. way that I don't think I've seen since the. Mm-hmm. It's not about some 
conspiracy that will be into the next several years are Sony's film products. <laughs> Again, just really focus on the humanity. Just when the movie stops and focus on the characters like this. No. I remember, I, th I think, in the commentary, it was maybe Ryan McGuire talking about how difficult the scene was to do or something like that because it's one shot, the camera's going around McGuire here. He has to give this performance. It's probably a lot harder than it looks. And then you're outside, so you're wrangling just like a ton of other things as well. Yeah. Now I just wish, because people were walking by him, like him just being like, you know, I'm Spider-Man. What? <laughs> Did you just hear that? That guy just says Spider-Man. That should have been Bruce Campbell's cameo. It was like a crazy homeless bum on the sidewalk just screaming. Yeah, hey, this guy just said he's Spider-Man. <laughs> it's like, um, remember the that deleted scene I showed you from the first Ghostbusters? They just had a deleted scene where like, there are just two separate homeless characters played by Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray. Oh, it's just, yeah, that it's, was weird. It's, it's, it's not them undercover. It's just it's just like it takes place in between Louis Tully running from the demon dog to like the shot of him like at the restaurant. And it's just like it's essentially Bill Murray's character from Caddyshack Homeless and then Dan Aykroyd's character from Trading, uh, Trading Places. And it bears nothing on the plot. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> this scene, we see the origin of Dr. Octopus. Well, I, I just want to say, talking, going back to the script, I, I noticed this a while ago where, um, where this, this, mo this movie's script is impeccable, which means the structure is impeccable. I If you really look at the time code of this movie, we're, I think we're about a half hour in, Yeah. and that's when Doc Ock's origin happens. Half hour later, hour into the movie, Peter quits being Spider-Man. Half hour later, Peter's Spider-Man again, and then it gets in the third act, and that's two hours kind of incredible how it's bro I don't know how planned that was but I just always noticed yeah it's that. very well paced there's, there's two things I, I like here in terms of tangential details I like the arms because the arms look a little bit like bionic arms <laughs> they kind of do I also like the music here is essentially just a recomposition of the Hellraiser 2 theme and the story goes <laughs> that when they were editing this scene they used the Hellraiser 2 song as the temporary score huh. Sam Raimi got attached to it and requested that they just compose something that sounds very similar to that and Danny Elfman was not very happy to hear that <laughs> he was he might have said something along the lines of well if you just want to use the Hellraiser 2 theme get Christopher Young the composer to go do it so they did and Christopher Young came in basically recomposed Hellraiser 2 did some of the other music here I'm not sure on this but he might have actually Done the composition for the frame scene here. Hmm. Uh, I'd have to know that. Yeah. Oh, quote me on that. I have to double check that. But then he went on to do the music for the third movie as well. No, Christopher Young did do the train scene. I do yeah. remember that. Yeah, I did not know that. And um, yeah, well, no, they, they had uh, a falling out. Danny yeah. Elfman and Sam Raimi during this one. It's just funny. It's Hellraiser too. Yeah, hey, it was great. Great score. Christopher Young really is a a great composer. Ever seen The Fly 2? Oh, God, yeah. I, I saw it, like, a few years ago. Not such a great movie. Great score, though. Yeah, I agree with that. By Christopher Young. Yeah. Howard Shore did not return for The Fly 2. <laughs> it's 
the one with Justin Bateman's um, sister in it and Eric Stoltz, right? Or ju- Justin? Oh, is that? Yeah, Justine Bateman, I think. Justine Bateman? Yeah, I believe oh, so. I, I never realized that was her. Justin Bateman. You mean Jason Bateman? Just, oh, Justine sister, was his sister. Oh, I thought you said okay, you said Justin Bateman. No. Remember the episode of Arrested Development where he he thought like the prostitute was his sister or whatever, <laughs> or the dancer, and that was Justine Bateman. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I forgot. It's been so long. Well, here's the tritium. Tritium actually exists. Oh, it does? I thought it that was like... When I found it in my chemistry class, I was like, oh, Spider-Man 2. That's the most I ever got out of my chemistry class. It's the only time that a oh. neuron fired for you in that chemistry class. Exactly. I was wrong. It was not Justine Bateman. It was Daphne Zunga, the, um, the princess from Spaceballs, was in the oh, fly okay. They kind of look a little alike. Great little reference to the comics there with the goggles. Yeah. Oh, there's uh, Jim from Lost. Oh, yeah. Lost fans listening. I think we I exclusively Lost. <laughs> the breakthrough guy. You know he took over the company after Harry. I fully believe that guy still did not get control of the company. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Harry's like, get the fuck out of here. Oscorp is in Chapter 11 by the time he's <laughs> Spider-Man. <laughs> kind of interesting, though, in the third movie with Harry having to deal with that. He's just letting the company like collapse all around him because of his obsession. Yeah, that's something to get. And it was during the um, recession as well, so they really. No, it was before. He's spending all oh, his yeah. time with his, his glider trying to figure out how to fly that thing. <laughs> Some fire. So basically, those arms, their purpose here is to just push the rings back into place. Yeah, I don't see what the need to have them. A- physically attached to his spine really needed he could have just four assistants but yeah well i think he needs he can control it because he knows how it how it works there's a logic to it but you don't want to overthink it no no No. i i would not be making these comments if i thought that there was like a legitimate criticism to be made yeah this is lovingly poking fun Exactly. Now, in the video game version, this level was, I remember, a big bitch because the power thing, like the orbs just kept coming out, and it's a very difficult part of the game. I do remember. Andrew was furious when there was no <laughs> alien invasion scene in this movie. Like the video game when he saw it. Oh, my. Where's Mysterio? This is great. That's great Raimi shot. Right oh, yeah. Here. With the eye. Yeah. Oh, God. Ugh. Terrific. It's great because it's very just. Like, even then, you don't see. Um, it's very um, subtle, and, like, you don't see, like, a lot of... Um, theory. you don't see anything. Like, it's just very tastefully done, but it's still, like... I had to look away, because the implications of it is far more horrifying, so it's, you know, letting your imagination do the work for you with yeah. that death. It's classy. Yeah. yeah. And it's implications. Honestly, it's more effective that way and more in line with the tone of this movie than if they just showed several spikes <laughs> of the head. Yeah. Well, it doesn't mean Raimi can't have fun because the next scene we see some vintage Sam Raimi going on. It's, oh, it's, I remember first seeing it in theaters and I was, I was so shocked by it. My, it's, it's awesome like how like terrifying and scary it is. and that's, like, that's a lot of fun, but really it is sort of like a build-up to this terrifying villain. It's that character element that really makes it effective. If it was gruesome for the sake of gruesome, then 
Yeah. You know, it, yeah. We wouldn't we we wouldn't be nearly as interesting. Yeah, it's affected because of what it what it accomplishes for the character in that scene and how it advances in the story. This yeah. is great. It's yeah. Just... Now I remember my parents when I watched this with them for the first time ever. They're like, "Oh yeah, a Spider-Man movie, kids movie." They just see this scene and they were fucking horrified. There's no blood yeah. in this scene. It just, really does feel like something out of Evil Dead, though. Yeah. Yeah, they're just the more oh, God, yeah, just how it's setting up the the buzz saw there. You get the geography of the room. God, imagine how difficult this would be. Like take away the murder like if you're like a doctor like how the f- what the fuck do i do here like i don't know cut the arms off and take shot glass <laughs> i mean pretty much explained it earlier is like in doctor terms it still feels like you gotta like put fucking anchors on the ceilings or you're doing some like get the janitor in here to do shit now, I do like, and they mentioned this on the commentary, and it's a very subtle thing that Raimi, I think it was Raimi, said that you'll see in a minute, like, they show, like, Doc Ock's, like, face. It still has the bandage over. He's clearly not awake. Like, he's, like, it had, it was important to show that it was the arms acting independently on their own. You know, and that's, like, a, a thing of contention among fans or people who watch this movie. They, they don't like how Doc Ock doesn't have complete control over the arms, which I don't know if they're missing the point of that. Yeah. As a kid, that bothered me, but I was looking at it in a very superficial yeah. way. I think the point is it sort of represents, like, the devil on his shoulders. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it really, like, is sort of a part of his psyche. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, part, it, well, it fits in the theme of choice in this movie. Keep in mind, he does choose to, like, to become in sync with the arms, and he's doing everything he, he wants to do, and that's part of his arc in the end. He, he chooses to... Sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. And he's able to, at that point, be like, no, no, listen, yeah. listen to me. Well, it's misunderstood that the arms are controlling him. I guess people criticize Donald, but that's not what, that's not what's happening at all. They're, Again, it's a very superficial way of looking at it. It's more like he's giving in to an influence that these AI arms are having on him. And yeah. it, it was much more connected with how he's already thinking than anything. It's not like he's possessed by robot arms yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. But, but Jacob, it's, he's not bad enough. He's not evil enough. <laughs> yeah. He's not dark enough. I love how silly that is, but I love that shot so much. Oh, it's great. It's very monster movie-esque. Yeah. Like, Raimi really just goes for it. It's like, you, you can call it silly, but it's like sort of elevated, if anything. Yeah. And it fits with the tone of these movies. Well, and it's like what we said on the commentary track for the first Spider-Man. Like, they really balance the level of corniness and like i think especially in this one with like the various actors like it knows it's like we're gonna like this is we can have a little camp to this but we can still like take things seriously like they found they struck the balance perfectly and you know that's very difficult to do and most directors wouldn't do that or have the confidence to do that because that's a lot more difficult than you think oh yeah i mean people people would shy away from that that cheesy element because they'd be afraid of it because they think it's inherently silly but that's what the next version of this character did, the rebooted series, yeah. at least with the first movie. And then the second movie, they tried to re-embrace it, but they didn't have the same grasp of tone that Sam Raimi and his team did. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I like the fact that he just keeps naming the villains. <laughs> yeah, did, he, did he name Venom and Sandman in the next movie? I don't think so. I, 
I thought he like said, he's like said some some or the headline said Sandman at least with the implication. And we just got our first Marvel crossover of the when he referenced Doctor Strange. Yeah. And he says it's taken. And then everyone that read comics from the theater is like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and they move on. Where you been? Looking for you all morning. You haven't paid your phone bill. Oh, we didn't get Bobby home in the sec then, eh? Yeah. Nice moment. Yeah, he doesn't get much to do, Robbie, in these movies, but there is like a real gravitas to him, I feel like. He's kind of, you know, yeah. not like a moral anchor, I'd, I'd call it, but... Uh, I'm surprised how much they actually managed to fit in of his characterization in the comics, where he was sort of like the level-headed guy in the office, and he uh, liked Spider-Man, but also liked Peter, and may have had his suspicions that they were one of the same. This is the only one that really gets to touch on that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. You know, this scene is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Because here, Alfred Molina is acting against nothing. It's one of those scenes that, in principle, could have seemed very silly, but it's very effective. And I think yeah. that's part of the bravery of Rainy here, just maybe his inherent interest, like what most filmmakers would shy away from. Like, this is part of that embracing of the material, you know, you wouldn't really get with other filmmakers. You wouldn't get a scene like this. You wouldn't have faith that an actor could act against nothing here and, and do something like this. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. Okay. I, yeah. <laughs> sense. Okay. No, and again, it goes back to what I was saying. It's like, you know, he knows how to balance, like, a very, like, well-acted, very dramatic, sobering scene with these fucking monstrous, cartoony claws around, like, in, in a way that I... it's. Other filmmakers definitely would struggle with that. I gotta say, I have not felt so much sexual tension sort of towards Sam Raimi in one room in a long time. <laughs> this is the place where Raimi and Raimi acts. Raimi acts. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's clever. Yeah, that's good. That's gonna be the ta- in the tags for the um, video. Okay. No, well, well, this scene's great because there is an arc to this scene with him and everything. feels bad for himself but here this is the turn and it's a great cut to kind of represent literally a turn and he well he cuts and yeah he literally turns I I like him trace the arc this whole conversation that he's basically having with himself and this is him this is not the arms controlling him obviously like you said it's the devil on his shoulder but he's ultimately making this choice because it's part of it comes from his ego too and everything there's that Doc Ock arrogance but it is rooted in his humanity that's the key it's rooted in a real humanity that I'm able to accept Yeah, he's he's a little poisoned by the. I think the arms are just giving him the little push he needs to go into the letting the ego completely take over. You know, the, the push towards what's already there. Yeah, but like you said, ultimately it's within his psyche. Well, that's thing you saw that even before the arms took over, when like it's clear we need to shut this fucking you know project down, Doc, and he's like, no, yeah. no, like yeah. you saw a little there. Oh, there's the guy from the soup, yeah. Joe McHale. Yeah. Now, I find it interesting with this scene. Um, I briefly mentioned, and we talked about a little bit, the um, teaser trailer they did for the first Spider-Man with the bank robbery that ended with the um, helicopter in between the Twin Towers. I'm 90% this is the same bank, ironically. Like, it's it's hard to tell if cutting because it's like how many 
banks have multi-levels with a giant vault in the middle of the room. And I know this is a very famous um, former bank in somewhere in L.A. that's used in like tons of movies and TV shows. So I wonder if it was the same location. You said this was a former bank? Yeah, it's not so actually a bank now. So bankrupt trying to mortgage Aunt May's house. That's yeah. what you're saying. Yes. Um, yeah, it's just in a lot of movies and TV shows because it's got that great iconic, you know, vault in the background of the office. Oh, he's in a trench coat and a fedora. Yeah. Classic comics. <laughs> but here it actually works. <laughs> yeah. I remember um, they use the advertising in this the, from this scene to advertise the um, DVDs of him throwing like it just was the disc. So it's like <laughs> get Spider Man two on DVD. Did they do that? That's yeah, crazy. that's hilarious. I'll show. I'll can show. You, like, can you splice that in? I, I will splice that in because it's on the DVD, so it's definitely available somewhere. It's very early thousands. And it um, <laughs> they have another part like when he throws him into the car door or the, like the the um, cab like they also use that to be like. Two discs. Yeah, oh, this feels like a classic Spider-Man comic. Yeah. Just all these There's people. One Spider-Man's two clips in the whole movie. Yeah. Oh, which makes the movie terrible, didn't yeah. you know? If Spider-Man doesn't quip enough or make enough jokes, the movies, the Spider-Man movie is much worse, according to many people on the internet. Oh. Now, I just wonder, like, these poor extras, like, I know they're not real gold coins being showered down, but that had to be terrible for just having, like, plastic coins or something being dropped on you constantly. Yeah. You know what it is uh, with the clips? You know, it, it sort of made sense watching it while you didn't in this. I, I appreciate that they were able to figure out how to do it in the, the MCU more Easto. However, when they tried to do it in the Amazing Spider-Man movies, it was, I guess the word I'm looking for is a disaster. <laughs> it was terrible, and it just made him seem like, like a, a, a jerk. This shot, right, by the way, that was the disc flying. <laughs> Sorry. But no, yeah, you got to balance it. Um, and I, I never really was thought too negatively or positively like the amount of quips were like off balance it's like you know he makes his jokes every now and then and they're they're good the script has more important things to worry yeah. about than how many jokes you can fit in like how close up we can get to the screaming lady's face this is sam, classic sam Ring, just yeah. women these extreme close-ups of women screaming at the camera yeah. But no, that's and that's why I was also saying that's like yeah, like he like knew like how to go into like the classic, um, cartoony, um, for lack of a better word, like comicy, like over the top from like the silver era. Like you know, it's like I always use the example like from like the opening credits of the George Reeves Superman, like when the people are like look up in the sky, like you know, like they're like really animated. It's like something very retro with it that yeah makes me feel like oh it's oh hey hey there's Stan Lee again. Again, before it got obnoxious. And then he said, look out. Again. I don't think it got obnoxious. Well, um, it was just uh, more subtle back then. Yeah. Because even at this point, he wasn't like the huge public persona that he became in his later, later, later years. Well, I, rem I even remember, like, they'd be like, oh, keep an eye out for Stan Lee, the creator. And, like, they would have to circle around it. Like, they knew a lot of people had no idea who the hell he was still at the time. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, he was, like, certainly notable, but it wasn't, like, he, he wasn't Walt Disney at yeah. this point. Your, your average viewer didn't. This choreography of the action here. Like, again, like I said in the last commentary, every shot feels planned out by the director. It's not just handed off to an animatic team. 
And the CG still holds up. Very oh yeah, well. it still looks better than a lot of blockbusters today. Because there's, I think Roger Ebert wrote in his review that there's a lot of weight given to the to these CG characters when they when they hit something, it just feel like you know, a lot of practical there. stuff too. They really yeah. did like throw Rosemary Harris off a drop for this. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, yeah. She said her she felt bad for her stunt lady because it's like you know how many like. St- Dump workers are in their 80s and like her build so yeah i took a little work away from her well she wanted to do it too she yeah. was really game i she like this shape, really shape because she's like 90 and she's still acting yeah she's oh. still doing a lot of broadway plays and stuff she like I, I think i saw her on like some show a year ago or something i oh. was pleasantly uh surprised to see how prolific she still was oh, i yeah. hope if they ever you know do a spider-man 4 she can come back I know they won't. Wouldn't it be great if um, in the new series, like, they have, like, you know, Aunt May's, like, mom comes in town because how young Marissa Tomei is. Like, this could be her mother. It's like, oh, hi, Grandma May. And then they just bring her in and everyone just stares in the camera for 30 seconds and then continues on with the plot. Oh, wow, that sounds like a a CW DC show. (laughs) Oh, I thought I was being really original with that. You were being obnoxious. It's very much like a CW reference or something. Yeah, it's just really great. Notice how it just it balances the the main plot with Peter's struggles in his private life. It, it's really it's very difficult to do, and it makes it look so easy. Yeah. Now it, we're cutting it. Right, you know, we're going into here. The sign of a good script, and the sign of Jake Wilson. Yeah, it just. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> Peter can't get the drink either later on. Yeah. He's got the lens cap on. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's James Franco of today. Gosh, you'd be drinking if you were a D plus student that had no idea how to like balance a checkbook that someone has to run a multinational conglomerate. surprising the amount of deaths the, the characters go in this movie. You just didn't yeah. expect this going in, into this film, but it just tension the character where a lot of superhero movies and, I don't know, you see more intimacy in, in this movie than you do in a lot of dramas. Maybe that's unfair to say, but I just need attention to detail anyway. Maybe that's just a subjective thing. But Well, you know, there's the stereotype that superhero movies, and by extent um, heightened reality This movie proves that idea wrong. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm... I think it, it proves my idea right. Oh, I'm, I, that's what I meant. Yeah. Sorry, right. <laughs> I meant was about to say. Well, I meant the... I hate superhero movies, except for this one. I hate. Well, well, when I said wrong, I meant pushing back against the conceit that they couldn't be. I know what you're yeah. yeah. I also am. I forgot that he went to the moon in this version. So I'm very sad that apparently in this universe, the Bush administration had enough money to send us back to the moon, but not in our real world did we do that. (laughs) (laughs) 
how do you think George W. Bush would react to like hearing this like during his like national security briefings? Oh, and also there's a uh, mad scientist on the loose in New York with um octopus arms. But um, back to the war in Afghanistan, Mr. President. I wonder how that would have went. The no. local NYPD comes and kills us. <laughs> Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Heck of a job. He's got a, a, a son that could destroy the entire earth. I'm just imagining after like Doc Doc is dead, like Bush came to town. He's like, heck of a job, Spidey. Heck of a job. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Aren't you glad we're doing all these early 2000s presidential references? No, mission accomplished was the sign he held up after Sandman got sucked in the drain. In the middle of the <laughs> all along, national nightmare is over. <laughs> was it? Okay, this was a great scene. <laughs> <laughs> Again, at second-rate film school. Come for our plotting um, analysis of films. Stay for the really bad jokes over scenes that are important. Yeah. This movie looks great. Oh, it yeah. Bill Pope's cinematography, DP of The Matrix. Different DP on the first movie, but Bill Pope, Bill Pope did the, the second and third film. I wa- the, a soft yet naturalistic feel that works with the... Uh, it, it, it just really looks good. doesn't look like an Apple commercial, as you say. Like a lot of... <laughs> Yeah. A lot of those new ones have that glossy look because they do that that digitalized uh, that digitized post color conversion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here, this it looks like it was shot on film and they just did it more natural color correction jobs. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say um, the one thing I have against the cinematography is their heads are being cut off. But I forgot we're watching the full screen DVD <laughs> version. The only thing is that they seem to have used a wide angle lens for every shot because everyone's face is. Jameson's head is cut off. Despite this being one of our favorite just movies in general, both Jacob and me only own um, the full screen version of this on DVD. It's because I have the the Blu-ray copies. And I don't have a Blu-ray player that could hook up to our crappy little TV in the room of recording. Well, you know, I always notice it in that scene when Doc Ock breaks out of the hospital and he does the thing where it's like his hand or his arm opens and there's the snap zoom into him. But because it's full screen, it just snap zooms into nothing you know, like <laughs> the space between his head and his like mechanical hand and cuts both the head and the hand off and it's just into an empty space yeah great full CGI, screen is great great cgi close-up shot here yeah okay it's, it's nice that you can have a shot of him swinging where it's more about the internal drama than just the amazing feat that he's currently accomplished. yeah you can feel like how this is relaxing to him. Like this is him trying to like process everything that's going on in the only way he can almost like, you know, his apartment sucks and shit like that, that this is almost, even though he's traveling, this is almost therapeutic for him as well. I always felt that that scene, at least with the very beautiful score going Mm -hmm. over it. Yes. 
It's yeah. just another obstacle. Well, it's a major obstacle. That's the catalyst too. Is that there's ultimate choice. Yeah. Great transitions here. Just little yeah, stuff, yeah. but just that Sam Raimi's visual storytelling. Okay, and this is the last time we see Doc Ock for about maybe thirty minutes of the movie because now yeah. we're just focused, getting headlong into the Peter Spider-Man No More plot. This this movie does so many amazing things. I know we talk about that, but it balances Spider-Man No More and then Doc Ock's origin story at the same time. Doc Ock had to call the power company during like thirty <laughs> minutes to put the power back on at his abandoned warehouse. Chase all the homeless people that would be realistically there. Again, homeless people constantly in these villains' lairs. <laughs> his Grateful Dead shirt. Very New York doctor. That. Yeah, well, that's what. Yeah, it feels like a doctor from New York. He's just kind of like this New Age. Well, maybe not New Age, but there's character to him, even though he's in this just one scene. Doctor, doctor too. He doesn't have a name, but they thought to give, like you said, the just little trait to him. Yeah, it's nice. He sits up next to him on the on the thing there. Do you think this is how he describes any problem he's having? Oh yeah, I'm having a dream where I'm. Spider-Man, like, very suspiciously, and just people kind of, like, it's an open secret, but everyone's just too polite to say it to him. Humoring him. His the, the, entire, the entire medical office here has seen how radioactive this blood is. <laughs> <laughs> the, the nurse got sick just transporting your blood to, to quarantine. The Grateful Dead shirt's just hiding the lead vest he has to be wearing to be around him. It, it's a lead Should have been a Led Zeppelin shirt then. Get what? it? Get it? Because it's a shirt. Well, because he's a doctor. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Well, you know, this this scene right here is one of the best scenes in the movie. Yeah. Again, it's just a very inspired scene. It's a, I don't know. Maybe this is an Elvin Sargent creation. Or maybe, I mean, who knows? But the point is, just a very unique way to... Uh, externalize Peter's problem where it's it's not just he makes a decision not just him in that room talking to himself deciding it's it's it goes back to this key scene in the first movie that we're I his old character to get yeah. I that, love that it's framed in the old car from the first yes. one like they're wearing the cars it's like yeah it, it, it was a very subtle way of taking the headspace yeah this would be this is this is the place to do that to go back to the place where it all started from and then to, to end it and also, again, you know, like, get able to find a way to get Cliff Robertson to come back again. Because, you know, how, we talked about it extensively in the last commentary, just, like, how much he, you know, killed that scene. Like, how just great of a performance it was. So, very clever way to just be like, how can we get, like, one of the best parts of the first movie again? Like, and have it in a very clever way. Well, this, when he says, take my hand, so much, it's, it's incredibly emotional. Yeah. <laughs> just... For him to turn down Uncle Ben. Yeah, like, I, I feel like a lesser version of the scene would have just had Uncle Ben appearing in the apartment or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the audience obediently claps and watches the action as it happens. But they they did a, a clever thing, I guess. Yeah. I really like how um, this next shot is, like, the, the loving care of it had to go into recreating, like, one of the most iconic not even just Spider-Man, one of the most iconic comic book covers of all time with it in the trash can. Yeah. 
It's a nice reference. It's not oh, oh, this movie isn't overly oh, excuse me overly reverent towards its material like a lot of a lot of stuff is now. Because the scene isn't about the reference. Yeah. yeah, the reference is just an avenue for getting the story idea. Yeah, it's a nice thing that like you know it's nice for us to enjoy, but like you know my mom and dad and sister who had never read a Spider-Man comic and watch it like oh it's just a nice shot like it didn't stand out like is that a reference to something? Yeah, it's part of the story. And then this is great. I mean, this this song included. <laughs> yeah. Talk about a surprising choice, but not something you'd see often in a movie like this. And this is <laughs> just so special. Yeah. <laughs> now I will have to say, um, I do in case we're talking about it when it actually happens. Um, the first time my mom was watching this, I mean, we weren't in the theater, but she knew like yeah, we're nearing like we're um, yeah, we're well over an hour now. So she was only vaguely paying attention to the um, time we're in. So when it freeze frames on his face, she's like, oh, wait, is that how the movie ends? I'm like, no, no, mom, the, the movie is not over. The movie doesn't, it's not a happy ending of him stopping to be Spider-Man with the villain on the loose. That is, that is not the happy ending this is going for. Interesting, interesting observation. If you look at pictures of young Sam Raimi, kind of looks like Tobey Maguire. Well, I'll figure that out when I'm putting that up on the screen right now. It just one of those things. I, I this is just like a theory. I mean, but something I've noticed with filmmakers, they'll sometimes cast. It'll be like they'll cast actors that kind of resemble them, and the, the main characters are sort of like avatars for the directors experiencing the story, kind of like uh, Kyle McLaughlin for David Lynch and Johnny Depp for Tim Burton. Kind of like a similar thing here. Maybe, again, this is just a theory. This is more just an observation that I've always found kind of interesting and, and wondered if this was actually a thing. Uh, yeah, I can kind of see it. Sorry, I was on my phone. What movie are we still watching? Yeah, I can kind of see it a little bit. Yeah. That's the picture I'm going to put up on screen again right now that we're looking at. I sometimes would wonder what it's like for extras like this guy who's sitting next to Tobey Maguire. It's just like you're sitting in a theater seat next to Tobey Maguire for how many hours? Just like, sup? I like how he feels the need to take his glasses off when he's with her. I wonder if that was like a conscious decision, like, oh, you have to pretend like nothing is up with you still. Because I, I do wonder, because he obviously was wearing his glasses in the last scene when he's watching the play, and now he doesn't have it on there. I wonder if there was a decision, a reason behind that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's Peter just pre pretending. He, he, I think it's a confidence thing. He doesn't... He doesn't want to have his glasses on in front of MJ. Though he has them on later when he when she gets kidnapped. I wonder if that was just because they really needed him to have the blurry vision um, gag from the first one. Maybe. Again. I don't know. I've just always wondered how much of that was thought out. Well, I think he's just 
in this scene, he's trying to get her to see him for like who he is now and everything. And he, well, again, it's like this duality thing. He's pretending to be someone that he's really not. Maybe. I don't know. It'd just be a simple direct follow-up then, showing that he's, he's more comfortable in this space now. Hmm. And he's sort of limping, too, if you notice. <laughs> From like all the injuries. Well, no, just I think because without the glasses, yeah. he's like he's walking. Yeah. Him. He's trying to be more careful. There's just great lines here, too. Yeah. I wish that would have been a good way if, if, if they had made another one where they you see them get married, they get married on a hilltop. Like a little reference Aww. to that or something. Oh, yeah. I would have looked forward to seeing the 110 things you missed about <laughs> Spider-Man 12 or whatever that would have been. Where they'd have a picture of the hilltop and the, the photoshopped arrow. <laughs> oh, Christ. <laughs> I think the bizarre. Medium brown bag. I don't know if that. Even though we don't have a sound on, we're just really admiring J.K. Simmons' performance. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you can't, this is pitch perfect casting, folks. It's just funny. It's like, it's his costume. And they're like arguing, like, I won't, I won't pay 50 bucks for it. It's like Spider-Man's costume. Uh, I will say, we were talking a little bit about this before we recorded it, but there's a, there's a Spider-Man 2.1 scene. Now, for those who haven't, seen Spider-Man 2.1, the extended cut of this movie. It's basically an FX extended version of a movie just given a DVD release. And most of the scenes in it are pretty frivolous where you can tell why they were cut and they're not necessary. The only scene I even really particularly like watching in that, and I don't even think it needs to be in the movie still, is where Jameson tries on the costume in his office in private and is like jumping around. It's like a little moment, but it's the only moment and that 2.1 cut that doesn't make me sort of just like glaze over. Yeah, I remember actually seeing like an image from that before I actually saw the scene, and I'm like, wait, what the fuck is this from? My understanding is that he was, uh, according to Sam Raimi, he thought that he was going to look like a, a pudgy, pudgy middle-aged guy trying on the costume. But J.K. Simmons is actually in really good shape, and so he looked pretty good in the costume. Yeah. This is great. Like, again, how we've been saying how great J.K. Simmons is in this movie just the entire time. Just like, it's a scene that doesn't really do much, but having now seen it, I kind of wish it was left in because it is just so much fun to see more of him. You know, we it mentioned how he's barely in the first one, and they've really ramped him up in this one. And then the third one, you know, they ramped it up a little bit maybe a little less i don't know I, yeah. I haven't done a stopwatch but they definitely have they knew it's the same thing with um bruce campbell like he gets a lot more screen time in the third one i think a little bit more in this one than he did in the first one where they know these are fun actors i like having them in the movies you know a little, find more reasons for them to be in it yeah here's also one of the best scenes in the movie
know what 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 can you say about this scene because it's just pretty much perfect I don't have any recollection of the scene. I usually fast forward through it. Oh yeah, like on Netflix, you uh, <laughs> yeah play it at um, one point two five speed. Remember um, the scene in Amazing Spider-Man two where Aunt May has to go become a nurse, <laughs> and then she becomes a nurse. Anyway, so in <laughs> Spider-Man two, Aunt May is much more interesting than in that movie. Yeah, yeah part of her arc is uh, kind of what she talks about, which was set up. If I was faced with the person responsible, I don't know what I would do. And that's part of our arc in this movie, forgiving Peter, or at least understanding. Yeah. And this is just great acting. And you notice how the camera doesn't cut as much from Tobey Maguire here. Yeah, no, it's just a, a really good um, scene. Just like they let you know, the, the, you know, it breathe. And, you know, it's a lot more restrained than a what you would hear. Superhero movie. Yeah, I mean, like the score <laughs> is very simplistic. It's not like over the top you know it's it's it feels to me like a very natural like how someone would reveal that they at least feel res- partially responsible for like another loved one's death to another loved one it, it's great too because what's great about this movie is how you could have waited till like the third movie or something to, to do spider-man no more for peter to confess or or you couldn't even have that at all but i really love how they just weren't afraid to just forward the story and just take these these chances and just just for the dramatic purpose of, of doing it so you know it gives the character something great to do just i don't know i i feel like what with a lot of times you just the movie's just kind of well no that's the wrong thing to say i'm just glad this movie just didn't you know meander yeah it, it did brave things well and that's the thing i think it's also competently done in a way because i remember um when batman v superman came out people were like wow you're in the second movie and you're already doing the death of superman there there could have been a parallel world where people were like oh my god you're in the second movie and you're already doing spider-man no more but they had enough restraint and i think talent and artistry you know and just like the perfect combination of writing directing and acting that it was able to work out where it felt like a very powerful not forced not they're not just doing spider-man no more because like oh the fans will recognize that we're doing this where that feels to me with you know the death of superman that's what it felt more like oh let's do a famous comic arc that people will be aware of that this is done very well and again you know much like with how i mentioned with the trash can scene emulating the cover you know my parents never read a spider-man cover they still really like this movie and the plot line they felt that oh yeah this is a very natural progression. It didn't feel forced to them either. So it works on yeah. multiple levels. And there's a real understanding to what this storyline means and him bringing it into the uh, into the theme of the movie versus something like, I guess, Batman v Superman. The death of Superman thing where it felt more like a novelty. Yeah. Where you're just going through the motions of adapting a popular storyline. I'm sorry. I was just talking about really boring stuff while Bernard the Butler I didn't want to interject. Also, Maker's Mark was on the desk again, so he's keeping his dad's liquor around, apparently. He's got good taste. Like father, like son. Turns into a, so, turns into a psychopath as well, but has good taste in liquor. <laughs> Great camera work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh.
I like the idea that he could sneak up on him that you couldn't hear him clug, 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 <laughs> mortar shattering, like, below him, glass shattering. I love all the bloopers in this scene, oh, like, yeah. when they're trying to get the liquor, because these were partially real arms, and just the bloopers for this movie especially were great when it came to anything with them. Well, it's great that they opted, well, like we were talking about earlier, that they opted for a lot of practical stuff here, especially with Doc Oxen, because I feel like maybe today, or maybe in the hands of the wrong director, just for the sake of expediency, keeping on budget and schedule, they would just, it would just be yeah. totally CG. Yeah, I think you'd be missing, that's like a great character thing you'd be missing out on, too. Well, and that's the thing that... The arms are very much of a character. We talk about how these, the effects still hold up very well, you know, nearing 20 years after the fact that um, it's the same thing like with you know Jurassic Park and Terminator 2 it's like there were a lot of practical effects as mixed in there as well and the filmmakers took care for okay well when we have to do it digitally how is it going to look well you know like there's you know like out you know tons of footage from like Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park where they're trying to figure out like okay liquid metal going around a bar or a dinosaur running how would that look and i'm it's the same thing with this it's like okay how would these arms move okay well we've had on set ones we know how they move when we have to do these limited movements how would they move now when we have to do them in the computer that there's a lot more care behind when they're doing the visual effects versus okay his arms are going to be whipping around and grabbing yeah. shit oh yeah it's it's all again very character based this seems interesting and do you think this is meant to be parallel to the to the scene in the first movie, where, where there he's saving the saving the baby as Spider Man, but here he's saving the, the toddler? Just, yeah, the toddler. What, what if it's supposed to be the same one? I yeah. really don't know. Actually, that's a good question. Part of me is wonder. You know, you think that because it's shot very similarly, but it also like I, I don't get what it would be saying. So maybe it's just a coincidence. It's it like, it uh, could maybe, be. It's yeah. like a superhero thing to do. I I really I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, you could be right. In, in, a, in and of itself, in a vacuum, it, it could be that. I always kind of saw it as just parallels, just the heroics of Peter just as himself. He doesn't need to be Spider-Man. He's, he's, he still wants to do the right thing, even if he doesn't have his powers. Yeah. The only one thing I've always appreciated about the, the Raimi movies is when they have them doing the superheroic stuff that's not fighting villains, but it's like saving people. Mm-hmm. It's not incredibly forced and boring. No. Uh, yeah. Because... There's a real vicariousness to it that it makes it feel like, you know, it, it's almost like a power fantasy element where it, feel like, it feels like you're the one saving him and you're emotionally invested in the people getting saved. Whereas I think a lot of superhero movies, I, I noticed it was after Man of Steel came out and everyone criticized that for being too focused, Superman focusing too much on fighting the villains versus saving people. And they started forcing much more obligatory, the superhero saves civilian scenes. Yeah. Yeah. But it never like, never really did much for me when movies like that um, would force their scenes in because it it's like an afterthought ob- yeah it felt very obligatory whereas here it, it feels fundamental to the experience of being Spider-Man well and that's I agree um, because it's a very difficult balance yeah because yeah you have to like have the mindset of like yeah these superheroes are going on while they're you know like yeah they're fighting Doc Ock and Green Goblin but you want to have an idea that Spider-Man's out also you know, rescuing a baby from a burning building, stopping, like, a small gang of robbers. And, yeah, I think we've, as, you know, not to criticize, like, modern superhero movies too much, but, yeah, we've gone more into the action part. Like, it's refreshing when you see, oh, there's no supervillain in this scene. It's just, yeah, there's a fire, and he's saving a kid. But he makes it exciting. Yeah. The filmmakers make it exciting where 
you're invested in if theater is going to save someone from a building or save random person out in the street like the people that were almost crushed by that car they shoot it in an exciting way and they really bring the emotional element of the scene yeah and they just feel more like a hero that's like again there's a, you know when he's not fighting a super huge super villain he's out there doing minor things that make that makes him feel like a hero all around versus I'm going to take a break when it's the police can't handle the supervillain. That's when I'll step in. Sorry, we just talked over the world's biggest buzz kill. Oh, yeah. Well, it's great because, again, it's it, it's it's when he talks about here and we're not supposed to have what I want and what I need no matter yeah. what he does. Oh, yeah. He can't get what he wants even when he does try to do the right thing. Except right now, get some hot cookies from Ursula. <laughs> just, again, these little great oh. moments of character. They're... It, but they're not just thrown in for the sake of it. They're, they're kind of advancing the story. and But just a great way to characterize a scene, right? I hope this actress has done more, because I always liked her in these. You know what? She was in the SpongeBob movie, the original one. Really? She's like the theater usher in the original SpongeBob hmm. movie that kicks all the pirates out in, at the end. I'm glad I, she's had such an illustrious <laughs> career. That was the same year as this movie. Re- oh, yeah, yeah. Wow, she was on top of the world, I guess. Yeah, I don't know what she's done since then. I hope she's doing that. I'm going to display her IMDb. Whether it's good or bad, it's going to be up on the screen right now. Yeah, see, this scene could have just been, oh, uh, your aunt got a, gave me a message to give to you, and that's it. But it's, it's a great way to characterize a scene. It's, it still feels like it has a purpose, it's, but it's not superfluous. I think there's like a it's like a broader element of like the universe giving Peter a break. Yeah. It's like yeah. You, you have the autonomy of these scenes where you want to switch back and forth so it's not just depressing drudgery in his life but not completely idealistic it makes it boring I mean it's, it's a nice little shift in the, the positive direction to go things with that one again it's subtle but it makes all the difference in Peter's world just you know a piece of chocolate cake yeah because it shows in, that, that whole scene just helps emphasize the importance of the choice that he makes that it's never going to be an easy life but it is the life that he has to do mm-hmm So we talked about how old the baby was in the first movie. How old is uh, Henry Jackson here? He's got to be around our age. Yeah, I'm trying to think yeah. how old I was in like 04. I think that's probably close. I think she said he's 9 though. I was 12 when this came out. Okay, so he's, yeah, he's in his 20s. <laughs> that was also the baby from the first one. <laughs> Again, I like when there's like saying, you know, you got rid of your comic books or I can't, I wasn't paying attention if she had already said it or is about to say it. What comic books do you think Peter reads? Because I know that was a thing in like the original, like in the comics as well. Occasionally, see him reading comics. So like, what it like? What are comic books like in this world where there are actual superheroes? So in the Marvel universe, in the comics, all the Marvel comics actually exist, but they're historical documents. <laughs> That's great. Gets kid, gets kids um interested in history. Could you imagine like a, a comic book based off of like you know FDR? Like that's a monthly thing that everyone wants to read. That'd be great. I'd read that. Where'd you come up with FDR? <laughs> For just like saying historical documents. I don't know. He was probably a superhero. That's a you tragic backstory. Did I miss the FDR scene or something like that? No, I'm saying you know like okay, these are historic records that he reads. That would be like the equivalent of us reading comic books about like presidents and shit like that. Gotcha. Okay, I see the connection. Yeah. 
Also, I like how the classic is in here again. Yeah. And I get I get that they couldn't afford a new car. I don't know how I would feel about driving the car that my husband was violently carjacked and murdered. She just takes the subway. Show me hell made her do it. I'm giving you a new lease. <laughs> like they think the bullet holes are still in like the they have like the fist hole from Spider Man. Like she just had to put duct tape over it. Henry Jackson had to paint over him. <laughs> giving him five dollars. He's shampooing the blood of your uncle out of the front seat, Peter. Great, great dialogue here. Yeah. This movie was a big inspiration to me in terms of for writing. One of my favorite scripts. Did you write Spider-Man 3? That seems like that was written by a 15-year-old. Well, I actually did write a script of Spider-Man 3 when I was 14. Oh, I need to read this. We'll talk about that in the third movie. <laughs> It'll just be us reading it. <laughs> I have some of the uh, some of the lines that I did, but we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get yeah. to that. No, but again, yeah, like, this is a very, um, back to what we were saying earlier, like, Rosemary Harris has, like, a nice arc here, and I've always wondered if she's, like, understood, like, the implication, like, if she's aware who, that he's Spider-Man, like, they definitely pull back on that in the third one, like, I don't, like, watching the third one, I don't feel that she knows, but, like, with lines like this, I feel like she's hinting that she knows he's Spider-Man, at least. That's always the implication I had. This, I think it was the third one that gave me those, like, there's shades of, oh, does she know or doesn't she? And then, I don't know if you guys followed any of those leaked emails from the Sony hack in 2014, but... Were they talking about Spider-Man 2 scenes still in 2014? They did because Kevin Feige's notes on Amazing Spider-Man 2 got leaked that he sent to Amy Pascal. Um, I guess they sent... Obviously, he didn't work on that film, but they sent it to him just to get his opinion on it. And one of the notes he mentioned was how he... I, he was talking about Aunt May and he mentioned something about how there was like a does she or does she not know sort of dynamic with Aunt May and the Raimi movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess it's something they at least like thought about when they were making it because he did actively work with producing these ones. Hmm. Those movies did everything in those first two. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of just making great Spider-Man films. I love that look in his face. Um, did anyone see the edit of this where they made it so he was jumping off the mountain on Boromir? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Now I love um, you know we should talk about this because um, there he has a line is when he gets up uh, when he, he says my back my back which apparently was supposedly a reference to the real life back injury he had um, when making Sea Biscuit when he almost couldn't come back to do this and they wanted they thought about having Jake Gyllenhaal play Spider Man and it's just recasting Tobey Maguire but they wisely waited till Tobey was. In better health, but I, I cannot imagine just a world where like Jake Gyllenhaal has taken over for Tobey Maguire in this, and now oh. it's incredibly ironic with um, Far From Home. The whole back injury thing, I mean, I think that situation was a lot more complicated than it made out to be. Like, his agent may have been making a few more money, and there may have been some inner drama and turmoil going on yeah. where he almost lost the deal. Could you imagine? I mean, if you had to recast Tobey Maguire, I think Jake Gyllenhaal would oh, be yeah. the best choice. That would have that would have been the equivalent of what I said in the last contrary of like Roger Moore play, wanting to play a Bond villain in a later Bond movie. That would have been the equivalent. Like, nope, oh, gotta get the old Spider Man in there now. That would have been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> they could do a remake of Moonraker, and he can play the uh, the bad guy. Hugo Drex. Hugo Drex. <laughs> so he'd play yeah. a Nazi. 
<laughs> oh boy. <laughs> who got plastic surgery <laughs> after getting blown to bits in World War Two? That's that's Hugo Drax in the book. He has this. Yeah. Anyway. In the movies, he runs around in outer space with a laser <laughs> yeah. to James Bond. Basically, Moonraker is the best of the James Bond novels, and it's one of the least best James Bond movies. Yeah. I think I, I take more offense to that than you criticizing <laughs> Doc Ock. <laughs> I feel much more passionate about Spider-Man, but I'm very passionate about Moonraker. Than yeah. Now, um, with this moment here where she's clearly trying to recreate her the, sexual fantasy. <laughs> yeah, her, yeah, her sexual <laughs> fantasy. I'm like, as I look at watch, I'm like, I feel weird watching this, but I, I really wish like, like the Zucker brothers, like a version of this, or like if Raimi went full on, be like, Hey, I want to recreate something. She's like, no, it's not quite perfect. And she's like having him dangling upside down. He's like, uh, honey, why are you doing this? Like, why do I have to do this? Is there something you want to like tell me about? So she hires some muggers too, to, yeah. to make it more realistic. That's a moment that, I might have been apprehensive about trying to recreate the upside down kiss. Like, it existed and it's perfect in its brief moment that it's there in that first movie, but it works actually. Yeah. Because it, 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 it speaks more to Mary Jane's emotional state than it does to referencing yeah. the past yeah. in the movie, uh, previous movie. And it advances the story to get to this scene, which is why she wants to see Peter. That's a good point. It yeah. motivates her. Again. There's nothing superfluous in this movie. Every scene has a purpose. Yeah, exactly. So well, that something it just it's perfect. And that's saying like a lazier movie could have just had her with this new guy, and there be no like real lingering. Like she was in love with him at the end of the first one, and her being conflicted. Like you know, it's a tough thing, and this is very realistic. Of just like, hey, the person who I have feelings for doesn't have feelings for me, and she's like, kind of like almost settling for James Jameson. Mm. Um, that, you know, she's like, before, she's like, okay, before I go through with this marriage, like, are we sure here? Yeah. Like, yeah. this is her, like, last ditch attempt, and then a mad scientist with robot arms ruins it. This is the part where she finally is like, I do want to return. And Peter's like, actually, I was deceiving myself, too, but I'm not going to tell you why. And she's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I would be so pissed if I was married to This is how the teaser trailer opened. Yeah, because I, I, I was oh, wondering, yeah. like, why is he wearing the glasses again? What, what's going on? It was just so interesting. Like, this is how you begin a teaser trailer too, yeah. and then with the car being smashed, I'm like, wow, yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. of a way. Yeah, it was like I had seen a picture of what Doc Ock was going to look yeah. like, but I, that was the first time I saw him in motion. Oh yeah, that was a really great dramatic I introduction. I remember seeing yeah. that picture on the Sony website. Just going to it, I, I was like, "Oh, I'll go on the Spider-Man website," and then I just happened to see the Doc Ock picture. I was like, "Holy shit!" Was it that yeah. like one they used for all the promos? Okay, like looking behind. So the yeah. first one I saw was like in an Entertainment Weekly. I was flipping through at like a Barnes and Noble as a kid, and it was just the picture of him in the warehouse, just holding him. And I was like, "Oh, okay, I guess he looks." Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that was the first. Bad. That was the first version of Doc Ock I saw. And then I saw the teaser. I'm like, "Oh, okay, this is cool." Yeah, I remember the first time I ever saw the teaser, it was on the um, DVD, like, for Big Fish, which is, like, my favorite movie, and um, I get to relive that moment every now and then, because I still have that version of the movie, and I watch it, the trailers just so I can see that teaser still. It's so good. Yeah, no, it's yeah. it's a fantastic teaser. It, yeah. Oh, I like, just that moment. A little bit of the Matrix influence still on this movie, but not, not so much, like, in the first one. Oh, the first one, yeah, it's very Matrixy, yeah. but... But here, Raimi comes into his own in terms of directing action influence felt more apparent to me in the marketing of these movies than the movies themselves 
Yeah, mm. sure. I mean, it's still there in the first movie. Not not because it's uninspired, but just because of what the Matrix did in it. Yeah, but yeah. it was just they realized yeah, that was a cool effect. The marketing yeah. to these movies had that sort of dark, glossy, early 2000s effect where everything has mm. sort of that homogenized sheen to it. But the movies themselves felt distinct. Oh, it yeah. wasn't like X-Men where you could very much see just trying to emulate that kind of movie. Plus, you know, the Matrix influence does kind of work for Spider-Man. It, it, it happens to. Yeah. Should have said Spider Man as well. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what can a... you elaborate on that? What? The Matrix influence? Just in terms of the choreography and having the slow mo and everything, that 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 fits for something someone like Spider Man. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're not you're not saying like the aesthetic. No, no, no. I mean, I, he, I, I got what you meant. Yeah. French coat and glasses. Yeah, I mean, if there's anyone who wore that, could yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say, I don't know if I agree. With <laughs> I mean, Spider Man Noir <laughs> kind of wears <laughs> that look. It should not look like the Matrix. Well, he does wear that in Amazing Spider Man with the hat and the sunglasses oh, and God. the jacket. I can't believe I remember that. Wait, wait, what scene was that? <laughs> It was some point in the movie where he had like a he's like starting out a jacket on over like a trench coat. You're saying? Am I getting? No, not a trench coat. He had like a, a hat and a fuck it. Let's not. Talk I remember about him it. wearing the firefighter helmet in the second movie. No, well, okay, because in the Ultimate comic, he does wear the sunglasses, right? Or am I getting? Am I getting? Am I just? Do I just have dementia? I think so. When we get to the Amazing Spider-Man two commentary, we're gonna do in fifty years. Okay. Um, well, we'll I talk will, about that. Well, I'll gouge, gouge my eyes out by then, so I don't see it. Big, ready to watch Amazing Spider-Man 2? Where we're going, we don't need eyes. What, are you quoting the end of Back to the Future? I've never seen Event Horizon. Did they rip that off for it? In Event Horizon, Sam Neill like, gouges his eyes out. Yeah, I've seen like that image, but does he say where we're going, we don't need eyes, or were you just making a different joke? No, that's from Event Horizon. He literally says that? It's oh either my God. eyes or we don't need to see. Yeah, he says that. Oh, my God. We don't need eyes because they're in hell. Uh, also, I've always wondered where the hell are the leggings or the leggings, the leg they parts. Put them up there. Yeah. This is probably one of my favorite. Jason yeah. Moments. This was also in the ad for the DVD. I want Spider Man. Except for the one shot that comes up, which is one of the only flaws in the entire movie. The really zoomed in shot of oh, Jameson's yeah. face. Very blurred. Oh yeah. yeah. Oops. Yeah, that that was that was literally in the DVD, and then that was just the DVD case spitting. That's great. Just yeah. Spider-Man bursting through the newspaper, and this was in the teaser too. And then yeah. it goes into Doc Ock's. I know I'm describing. I'm like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, <laughs> I'm not describing what's going on. Yeah, but it was just so great. I mean, how can you? Oh yeah. Here you can see Doc Ock waiting for Spider-Man. <laughs> They're about to fight. <laughs> No, yeah, just this, like, entire, like, next, like, what, like, what, five minutes of the movie is just, like, okay. so much fun. Well, this coming up, I still maintain is the greatest action sequence in the comic book movie. Oh, yeah. Like, just everything from here until the end of the train sequence is just, like, perfect. It gets better, too. It's also so things like this. I wonder, like, what's it like to be, like, in this city, like, as just, like, construction workers, like, like we gotta get that clock to like hand up back up there. <laughs> uh, he just like kind of pulls it in half. He doesn't twist it. Yeah. He just like rips it in half. That's very difficult to do, even if you're a cyborg robot monster. Oh. <laughs> Great cutting of it. Oh yeah, just yeah. You know, the train sequence. The, the 
the second unit was the first stuff they ever shot for this movie in Chicago. Hmm. See, I was very disappointed with this scene as a kid. What? So wait. Also, so um, guys, this... to, if you get to talk about the um, the video game, I'm going to do my brief <laughs> thing into the Lego set because the Lego set showed Spider-Man stopping the train by making a giant like web cage around it, or it was like a giant like web barrier that it crashed into. Uh, okay. And I was like, oh, so this scene's going to end like watching it as a kid, where like, Spider-Man's going like, to swing really far ahead and make like a giant web that's going to catch it, and instead he did like this thing where he like, you know. Had to use like all his mental will and strain and like nearly Looked sacrifice like he's shitting his, his life pants. to like do it, and I was like, "Well, that's not like the Lego set. That's not what I expected," and I was very disappointed. Yeah, I don't Only remember. Later did I come to realize that that is a much more interesting <laughs> solution to this problem than just swinging ahead and I guess stopping it. I mean, that would have been the smarter thing to do, but yeah. So, do you remember any of the Lego sets from the third one? There were no Lego sets for the third one, actually, oh, because Lego lost the license. Oh. Uh, Megablocks made products based on the third one, which may have been the first omen, but... <laughs> now, I really wish, like, someone needs to cut together, like, this scene with the um, famous train chase scene from French Connection. Like, I really want, like, <laughs> when he crashes on the ground, that's when Gene Hackman's, like, swerving around. It's great, too. Just that shot before when he's... He's trying to catch up to the train and everything. You're just, you're just so, you're just so emotionally invested in everything. You're right there with him. Yeah. I'd also like to see a sketch where like so they're showing the people on the train before, because like imagine like you're just having a conversation and all of a sudden with someone, and then just like the person's just ripped out of the fucking train and thrown away. Yeah. Like the guy wearing like the fishing looking outfit or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I like the um dickhead like train conductor. He's like, What other plans do you have? Smart guy or something like that's like, hey, you know what, asshole, why don't you stop the train? I can get out of here myself. Got any other bright ideas? And I was like, Oh, that's where the web cage is gonna get <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what set you up. <laughs> so when, that whole emotional scene at, at the end of the scene, where you're just thinking, "Oh, it's not like was that what you were thinking?" I was tapping my toe, very frustrated <laughs> that they weren't doing it right. He, he actually got up, started swearing in the theater, and demanded his parents take him home. It was not very accurate to the Lego set. Can you imagine if I saw like Iron Man three <laughs> as a kid? And like, okay, a little background context: back when Iron Man three came out, and they were trying to hide the Mandarin. Lego released a set called the Mandarin like Ultimate Final Battle, and it was the Mandarin with like a dune buggy with like a rocket launcher fighting Iron Man. Obviously, that didn't appear in the movie, but I would have been so disappointed if that didn't appear. Evidently, and it ended with the much more interesting Aldrich Killian twist. Young Jacob would have been swearing. I'm just also having flashbacks like Back to the Future Three now, like on the like with the train. In the car. You can just hear the music right now. Even yeah. though it's yeah. on mute. Is Danny Elfman's original score for this out there? I don't know. I don't know. 
It, wait, are you saying this is all Christopher Young? I, well, not the whole movie, but oh. this scene though is Christopher Young, and I think Danny Elfman again. I you know don't quote me on any of this, but my understanding was that Danny Elfman may have come up with a different version of this scene's music. Okay. Well, I'm glad they picked this one. Yeah, I'm sure the Danny Elfman one was great, but whatever works best for the movie. Like I said, double check, fact check me later. Okay. okay. I'll have it up on the screen. I'll look into it. Yeah, I'll write it in that. Yeah. They'll just put a picture of you with like an X to the <laughs> Canceled. <laughs> now imagine if they they weren't quick enough to catch him and they just like, he just falls off. Everybody the get in the back of the fucking train. <laughs> <laughs> like what if that guy wasn't fast enough? Oh, oh, oh shit, we didn't catch him. He'll be fine, right? They spoiled this in the TV spot. For the yeah. Movie and the marketing, and I was like, "What?" I was also very bothered that he had his mask off here. It's like a very little kid problem. Yeah. Right? Because I'm watching it now, and I'm like, "Well, that's like the master stroke of the scene." Yeah. But as a kid, I was like, "Yo, Spider-Man, get your mask back on! <laughs> don't make that web cage." <laughs> I wonder if it was a um, <laughs> like a thing where Tobey Maguire is like, "I listen. I need to ha- not have the mask on for." certain amount of time in the movie like because i remember him like talking about how chafed like how much he would be chafing from wearing these co- the costume that he was like can we please do more scenes with me not wearing the mask at least no i i think it was because they wanted him more face time yeah and because you know we seeing their face we can get a lot more emotion involved yeah. in the scene because the mask is pretty restrictive that's again, why you see a lot of maskless scenes I, yeah and again that's one great thing about the uh, the mcu costume is they let the eyes yeah. Then you get scenes like this, though, which are just. Apparently, that's Tobey Maguire's half brother. Yeah. Both of them are. Oh, okay. Step brothers, I think. Yeah, half or step, yeah. Oh, yeah, half brothers. They look a little like him, so I'm going to assume there's some relation. You know, there would be at least like one dick taking his cell phone pic, tell a cell phone pic now. One on his 2004 track phone? Yes. He, he has to pull out like a full camera and put film in his <laughs> Or maybe they can use a Sony digital camera. Because it yeah. is a Sony camera. And then again, if someone did want to tell, you know. Hey, this generic you know, white guy was on this train. He was Spider-Man. It's cool. one of my favorite early Ultimate Spider-Man moments in the comic book. Ultimate Spider-Man was when the Kingpin unmasked Spider-Man the first time they fight and he just has no idea who he is and he's just like, I don't know, throw him out a window or something. Well, they did... It's th- like, they don't even care. They just, like, take his mask off, don't know who he is, and they go chuck him off a skyscraper. Well, if you think about it, what, what does it matter, really? I mean, it's like what, what that guy says. He was just a kid no older than my son. It just, yeah. it doesn't really matter who he is. Yeah. What? It matters if you're Peter. Well, yes, yeah, of course. I mean, just to, to, to the average person, I guess, what this scene's trying to get across. Yeah. They actually did, though, a funny joke version of that in um, Justice League, I guess, or one of the iterations of that, where, like, the Flash got his mask knocked off when he was unconscious, and, like, he wakes up, he's like, oh, my God, you all know that Wally West, like, no, we just saw your face, we had no idea who you were, and he's like, I, I mean, no, you don't know. <laughs> Wasn't there one where he switched bodies with some, with, like, Lex Luthor or something, and Luthor pulled the mask off to see who the Flash was, and just didn't recognize him? I don't remember that one, but I distinctly remember the other one. Be like, that's a very funny joke, and that—that's also a very Peter, I think, thing. Like, oh, people don't know me. 
also I've always like wondered um so you have this giant wall safe and this wall and I believe it's the same wall where the goblin layer is no that's the mirror no I mean it's like the same wall like it's on the other side of that so the person installing that um safe was like wait what the hell do you have behind here I was gonna say oh Harry keeps his knife next to his maker's mark (laughs) notice the maker's mark battle is almost gone it's a little nice attention to detail that's That should have been the poster. I did. Cause it's I like the, the rose from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> <laughs> when Harry's life will end. I remember seeing this in the trailer when, when he has, before he pulls off the mask. Like, How the hell is Peter going to get Is that even Spider-Man? Is it someone else? See, at this point in the movie, I was like, okay, so Harry's clearly going to get amnesia like Spider-Man in this movie. Yeah. Because they would never allow a status quo change that big. Well, but that, they did, and it's wonderful. Well, that's what I was talking about earlier. Like, I, I feel like in a lesser kind of movie, they would just wait for these things to happen, have, have it happen in like another movie down the line. But they do everything here just yeah. because for, for the purpose of drama and advancing the story. Yeah. And again, it, and it works. They you have the master Sam Raimi and great writers and all that, and they're able to fucking land it. It should have been like in uh, the the first Spider Slayer comic where they finally have Spider Man tied up, but Spider Man pulled a trick on him and put him like a dummy instead. And they pull off the mask and it's just like a straw dummy. Maybe maybe that's what I thought was going to happen as a kid, that James Franco was going to unmask a straw dummy as Spider-Man. <laughs> no, it was Jameson. Like, Doc Ock kidnapped him right as that scene of him dancing around was taking place. Oh my god, Andrew, you might have just rewritten the movie. <laughs> you made that scene pay off. Now they got to cut it back in. Wasn't there also, like, an issue or an episode of the show where... Oh, it was the 90s show where, like, Flash Thompson was dressed up as Spider-Man for, like, a party, and they thought he was Spider-Man? That's, that's like, in the comics. That, that's okay. an ode yeah. to the comic, issue 18. I think it happened in issue 5 as well. Where, oh. um, or maybe that was the one where he dressed up like that, and Dr. Doom just decided that day to go and kidnap <laughs> Yeah. He's, like, I don't know. I guess this must have been early in Dr. Doom's career, and he wasn't totally on top of it. But he, like... Spider around the city and saw Flash Thompson in this like Spider-Man costume and was like, "Oh, that must be him." <laughs> and Doctor Doom kidnapped Flash Thompson by accident. It's like John Mulaney's joke about like killing an aged Hitler, and it's like, "Oh, I thought it was him. It's just it was just an old guy. You thought it was Spider? It's just a guy in a costume. Costume shops exist." They should have played the goofy falling sound effect over that. I remember this level in the video game was really tough. Mm-hmm. As a final boss fight would be. I imagine filming the scene was very tough. Oh god, I can't not imagine being in these costumes like drenched in like fake dirty water for hours on end. What a great set. Do you have, did you have the Lego set for this scene? This was the only Lego set I did not have. However, I went to Just 
how simple the objective is for Peter. He has to just pull out those plugs again like the first time. Yeah. No, that's just, that's great because the movie isn't overly concerned with this overly complicated thing. It's just, it's about just doing that. It's more concerned with the characters. Yeah. That's what I love about it. They make it into a character moment too when Doc Ock has to do it himself. Yes. It really is great. Yep. Yeah, pulls it out, simple, but you know. And complications ensue. Yes, doing it, yeah, it's not the point of doing yeah. it. What matters is what gets in his way. You know what would have been better? If there was three keys that you had to find to turn off the oh. <laughs> That Doc Ock hid around the city, and oh. Spider-Man had to go and find the three keys. Oh, man. Well, I do remember the video game kind of <laughs> un- undermined. That was a, that was a MacGuffin joke right there. <laughs> yeah. I do remember the video game kind of did undermine this a little bit with like Doc Ock's sacrifice. I believe he still does it, but not to the level like Spider-Man does the majority of the work. I believe. Well, so. he kind of has to. <laughs> Doc Ock was getting pretty lazy with that self-sacrifice. Though. He's like, I'll do it. Oh, that's just effort. That, that's what that's what Bob Hoskins looked like drunk on the Super Mario Brothers set. <laughs> Oi. Spoilers to a commentary we're doing in the future. <laughs> I always like this moment. Again, this movie's just so good. We even with no audio on, we're just watching it, reading the captions. <laughs> Maybe we should do movies we actually enjoy. <laughs> See, this well, shows... Lucky for us, we have several of those coming up based on what I've been hearing. <laughs> based on what I heard 30 seconds ago. <laughs> See, this shows Doc Ock's inner conflict of him overcoming his... his uh, well, his psyche, I guess, with the arms and everything. Because yeah. people cite this scene with him, it's like... <laughs> how, how do they say it? I think what you're saying that the arms are in control yeah, yeah, too much. It's like, oh, now he's just a faction animal. It's not Doc Ock. He's not really evil and everything. That's what like what people want, but it's not about that. I think the whole because it's clearly like a, a shift in who's controlling when you see the arms like kind of they, they vibrate when he likes he's like listen to me now. Yeah, and it's it's not really like him regaining control of himself. It's like him making the right choice and then getting rejecting the, the devils on his shoulder. Yeah. yeah. They become tools once again. Check it, that's so much more interesting, though. Yeah. <laughs> what you're saying makes perfect sense <laughs> versus what a fan thinks because they want it just dark and gritty and they want Doc Ock to be evil. They don't want complicated or nuanced. Doc Ock should have just blown up the whole world at the end of this movie yeah. by that logic. They would have more satisfied with that, probably. Who needs character arcs? It's not evil enough. I did hear legitimate though people um, complaining that like Spider-Man doesn't do like enough supposedly to save the day in this. It's like he did did a lot. Going back to like what I was saying, saying who said that? I, just people like when I was in school being like, well, he's not the one who destroyed the bad like evil in the end. Like what going back to saying that he, Doc Ock's not Hold evil on. enough. Can you like give me their numbers? <laughs> I want to have a conversation with them after 
this. If, just because I, I've never heard that before. That's. Did they not watch the movie? The, I guess they felt like it's what we're going back to saying that Doc Ock's not evil enough. Like they're the same type of people oh. that like he's not the one like drowning and destroying the thing like in their 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 logic like i'm trying to go on the logic they're thinking they, to them this would have been the equivalent if like darth vader blew up the um death star in the first one it's like no that's not at all what that would this is it's you know still he's the hero and then you know doc ock is i take it they didn't like return of the jedi very much Pro- probably not well, the point isn't peter Taking out this huge de- doomsday machine—it's Peter saving a man's life to yeah. save the city. That's that's the, yeah. That's the true heroism. And it goes back to what we're saying—that it's far more interesting, and that's why it holds up. You're far right. More. You're absolutely right, Wes. Yes. It's so much more interesting. No. <laughs> I don't know nearly as much about film stuff as you guys. Sometimes I, I need to interject sometimes. No, no, I'm, just, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Against, like, <laughs> yeah, no, oh, yeah. I like that moment. No, not that. <laughs> Just him saying, I will not die a monster. Nice model there, too, actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> you can imagine, like, his spidey powers disappear right then. They get flattened. And this right here is a completely CGI off the movie. That's impressive. Yeah. I don't think the East River is that deep in this part. <laughs> Could you imagine you see like a bunch of like, it's just like, like nine feet deep yeah, <laughs> like you just like see a bunch of trash, like a bunch of like old cars and trash on the bottom. I always thought that was supposed to be shaped like a heart, like he was trying to be romantic. I didn't know shapes very well growing up. I was a special needs kid, so. Um, that's what happens. Are you sure it wasn't you who made those comments about me? <laughs> I, like, I just, I just kind of like took that comment with a shrug and then lost, fell down the rabbit hole. And I think you just say he fell down some stairs. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was in the classes. I wonder what these webs were made of. Like, were these just like, it looks almost like wire that they like then put like hot glue around. Chicken. Yeah, that that's what it legitimately like looks like chicken wire that they put like hot glue on. Toby Maguire's like it's no stab under my back <laughs> Well at least he has a little bit more protection than she does. Then imagine there was like an accident on set, like a wire gets knocked out to, it gets electrified, killing both Toby Maguire and Kirsten Dunst. Yeah. <laughs> they have to get recast for the third one. Give Jake Jillen all yeah, Alicia Whip. Wait, what? <laughs> she was in consideration for MJ in the first movie. I actually remember when I was really young when the first one came out, I didn't I like I could recognize people look similar, so I automatically if I knew other actors would assume it was them. So I assumed it was Topher Grace and um blanking out her name who played um his girlfriend Donna on that 70s show cuz oh, she's got red hair. That's the two of them, right? Yeah, Again, no. going back to me being learning disabled. That's what I thought. Yeah. Oh God, I think I remember that online. Yeah, I remember people saying. That. He gives a natural jump onto the pier. Oh, 
Now he's got to go make that costume again. You see all the fish floating up dead from it now. I love the it's more chicken wire. They must have had that left over when they left. <laughs> Never first seen this scene. Well, and I like how they use the music too from the first one. God, when music comes back. Yeah. You're just so invested in these characters at this point. You're just so excited to see. I remember hearing my mom react when she saw Willem Dafoe in the mirror. She's like, oh. <gasps> I wonder if they filmed that the same day they filmed the special feature that they had hidden on the DVD of Willem Dafoe acting like Doc Ock. I've never seen that. Oh. Yeah, it's like a weird, it was like they're trying to like show like Alpha Molina. It's like, well, this is how we want you to play. We got someone to help out. And it was just like Willem Dafoe like doing the um, opening bit of Doc Ock's like origin story. Like, just, and like, you know, Alpha Molina had no idea. He just like showed up to set that day, I guess. Yeah, it's cool. It's, on, it's hidden on the DVD. Now, there's an interesting thing coming up here. I don't know how, if it was intentional or not, but when he throws the knife, I'll show you when it happens. Avenger Venue. There's a Shakespeare reference. Right here. See that? Oh, See the... that how their faces kind of mesh? Does it, they kind of look like a goblin face to you? I always thought that. I'll have to freeze frame through it, but... Um... I think it's symbolism regardless. That's yeah. more of a father-son thing. Yeah, maybe that's just the twelve-year-old in me thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so twelve-year-old posting theories on superhero life. <laughs> well, this was like the first ever kind of geek-out moment I ever had, and with with the scene foreshadowing for the Goblin's yeah. Revenge. Now, I just imagine this is where Bernard sleeps, like he's got his own like little cot <laughs> set up yeah. in the corner. Well, what's great about this? It doesn't just feel like a reference run for its own sake. It, it is like a culmination of Harry's arc in this movie, becoming his own man. Yeah. By the way, I also for years did not realize it was reflect like glass on the other end that that was a reflection. I never saw his like reflection, so I thought like he just has thousands of these goblin bombs. Like, like how big is this bait? Like yeah. attic space? <laughs> yeah, they did like an aliens trick. Yeah. Oh man, such possibilities. <laughs> such possibilities. And none of them will be met. <laughs> He'll... I can't wait to see what this is. Gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> he won't wear that. <laughs> Yeah, I remember the, like the really weird Spider-Man friends and foe game. Like, they, I'm like, oh, are they gonna like? Because it was like set in the Raimi universe, kind of like because all the characters look like them. But I remember being like, oh, you know, Harry's gonna be in it. Like, are they gonna change his design and all? And it's like, nope, still looks like the paintballer. They probably should have delayed the wedding. Like her wounds healed up pretty damn quick. Oh, there's a green tie. Great little, great little nod. Yeah, there it is. I like to think there's like a Rachel getting married type subplot in this. At least, okay. Whoever's seen Rachel getting married, you know what I'm talking. Oh, about. I thought you were referring to Friends. No. I love that. If that's not a gif of just like him dipping his head in, it should be. <laughs> Here's your check. We will not need you Yo, again. Who's the priest? Father. Oh, 
Father O'Callaghan. No, the, he looks familiar. Yeah, I don't know. I'll look it up. Is like Jerry Conway? No, I think. I'll tell you who is not. Joe Casada or Steve Ditko. That is definitely not Steve. And I'll tell you who. Uh, Steve Ditko was there, it's very much incidental. And I'll tell you who this isn't. The Punisher. Wait, what? That guy yeah, back there. People that. online thought that was Thomas Jane. What? Oh. Well, because they did like a, if I'm remembering this right, Wizard Magazine asked him as a joke, and he like danced around it because it was clearly a joke. Yeah. But that probably just added more fuel to the fire. Like, probably. Of course it's not Thomas Jane. Because people take things at face value. By the way, John. sense of humor. No. By the way, John Paxton was still credited as Houseman in this. They didn't give him a name until the third one, I guess. Oh, even when he had a name? Yeah. Just like... uh, did, did he say Bernard in this? Yeah. Oh. The night Bernard. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess they still just credited him. Okay, well, here's the final scene, and this is a nice inverse of the final scene from the last movie. Where... Yeah. It's a great ship. I like how like warmly this scene, like this apartment, is lit with his like shitty like IKEA lamps. <laughs> evidently, but it looks beautiful. Nice sunset there. It gives the scene a little warmth. Yeah. Oh, John Landis was the doctor earlier in the movie. Like in the Doc Ock scene. Oh, you're right. That is. Like, Sorry, I'm just on I, like the director John Landis. Was, he's in that scene. Yeah, I had no idea. I'm just look, trying to look for the um, who played the priest, and I'm on IMDb right now. <laughs> yeah, I never realized like it literally is paralleling the end of the first one. Mm -hmm. I got in you know special needs class. I didn't realize these things. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. I also like the comic reference when she says, go get him, Tiger. Yeah. yeah. It's so earned, too. Yeah. I remembered, like, That's that like was one a... one of those lines that, like, I mean, there's, it's not a payoff within the movie, but it's just a nice line. Yeah. Well, I remember as like a kid in the theater, be like, "Oh, she, she said it." Yeah, she but, said it but you see it as like it's part of their arc where like she yeah. now she now wants to embrace this life yeah. and everything, and, and that's the it, important part yeah. of it more than the reference. And again, it goes back to it's like yeah, my yeah, like people like my parents who had never read a Spider-Man comic didn't think anything of it other than like what it's actually meant to be of like yeah, she's supporting him. Yep. Again, ending on really great swinging just. Feels amazing. The helicopter pilots freak out. Like, oh, fuck, fuck, pull back, pull back. I love the last shot, too. Instead of ending on Spider-Man, it ends on Mary Jane's face because I, I love her expression at the end here. It's it's almost... Says everything about what the third movie could have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, what, what's ahead? The third movie. Well, that's this is the best it ever got, folks. It was all downhill <laughs> from here. Downhill. In fairness, that's it. Pretty big goof. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, we're glad you... Um, oh, we can still talk. Oh, okay, like, we can talk. Through the credits. I prefer to watch the credits in silence. <laughs> but what else do we want to say, really? I mean, Scott Spiegel, that's the man on the balcony. That's the co-writer of Evil Dead. Okay. Still looking for the priest. Maybe you guys will find it before I do. 
Maybe it's just me. I, I don't know. But uh, do we have anything else we want to say about about this perfect movie? No, I think we've summed it up in the long time we've been recording this. It's it's a great movie. Yeah, you know, perfect. I'd say better than Citizen Kane. I'll just say that I've watched this more than Citizen Kane. <laughs> yeah, no, I legitimately. Yeah. I, again, I will say that like if someone has never heard of like Spider Man, I think this is what they need to watch. Like this is the epitome of what Spider Man is. This is the like height of his character, lows of his character with you know when he's self doubting, but just like all done in a perfect way. You know, they all hit it out of the park with this one. Yes, it's a terrific story at the end of the day, utilizing a lot of the great, some of the great stuff of the comics, but still being a great film in its own right, which is what you should be. Yeah, because ideally, and, you know, we joked with it, you know, that, like, about, like, the CW DC shows, like, being just jammed in with references, like, oh, you get it, like, this works perfectly for people who love the comics and have read every single comic and who have never read a single comic of Spider-Man in their life. It can work for both of them very well and that's a difficult thing to do I think as I previously said I prefer to watch the credits in silence (laughs) well I think we'll wrap this up so okay (laughs) yeah um, tune in next time when we're all a lot sadder talking about Spider-Man with Spider-Man 3 so until then have a good night I do not know if I fully agree with that last statement Um, as I am very much looking all I'm saying is that me saying the word great all the time, if you've noticed, won't be happening so much. <laughs> we will be, he will be handing that word off to me. Yes. Right. Good night, everybody. Good night.